So do you guys, uh, do, do you remember the Prince Valiant comic strip? Yeah. You guys remember that? My brother and I used to love uh, going to my grandparents' house after church on Sundays because they would, would always stop on the, the way home from church and get the newspaper uh, and, and give us the funnies. And, and Prince Valiant was one of our favorites. Uh, for those, is there anybody that hasn't seen it? Okay, there's a couple. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's a syndicated comic strip created by Hal Foster back in 1937 uh, as a fantasy tale about an exiled prince who goes on an epic quest to become one of the knights of the round table uh, and to learn to embody the, the high ideals of chivalry, you know, courage and honor and, and courtesy and justice and a readiness to help the weak. And all of those things in the service of King Arthur and for the glory of Camelot. And I think, I think most of us would agree we like stories like that, right? Uh, stories of daring quests done by a hero or a heroine. Stories of, of triumph over adversity and, and do-or-die adventures against insurmountable odds. Uh, stories that really let us leave behind this mundane world that we already know and explore places that we've never been before. Uh, and, and catch, even if it's just for a moment, and catch at least a glimmer of hope that this life is about something greater than just our day-to-day -day drudgery. And if, if that's you, if you, you've ever felt that way, uh, and if you are a part of this fellowship today, if you signed your name to the compact outside, I want to tell you today that you don't have to resort to fantasy or to escapist fiction to be part of a grand heroic adventure because as a body of believers... You and I are a living part of one right here, right now. One, one that stretches all the way from the people of the Exodus to the apostles of our Lord. From the church of the first century in the Middle East to the cathedrals of the Middle Ages. From the Reformation of Luther and Calvin in the 1500s to, uh, to Carolyn, our pilgrim fathers in Leiden and from Plymouth Rock right here to Zephyr Hills, a grand narrative of redemption that follows the story of the rescue of God's elect out of the dark forces of this world and into a victorious life of service to King Jesus. Uh, it's a life of ups and downs, uh, twists, turns, uh, un unexpected dangers, and unimaginable grace as Christ sends us out to accomplish his purpose in this world and empowers us to do valiant deeds that the Bible says God has prepared beforehand for us to do in the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And I want to show that to you uh, through the reading and the exposition of Psalm 108. So I hope you'll join me there. And it's superscribed a song, a psalm of David. David writes, My heart is steadfast, O God, I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I'll sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens, and your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in his holiness, with exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter. 
Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we will do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. Let's pray together. God, we thank You so much that You have blessed us with Your Holy Word We thank you for this opportunity to read it as a a body of believers. Uh, And we thank you even more, Father, that you promised to lend your Holy Spirit to uh, to superintend uh, just its its public reading and its public proclamation, uh, the message of the sermon. And so, Father, we ask you to take these next few moments uh, and sanctify them to your holy use and to the good of all that hear. And we ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. So... Uh, It was C.S. Lewis who once said that we need a fresh breeze of centuries past to blow through our minds truths that we've forgotten. And I think that's, especially in this uh, postmodern, post-Christian culture that we're living in, that may be more true now than ever. Uh, And a piece of that forgotten truth is laid out really nicely in the last verse of Psalm 108 that I just read to you, where we read, uh, with God... We shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. In other words, remember, even in our most heroic moments, we need to realize, if we're honest, that we have been merely the means that God uses to accomplish his purpose in this world. Right? We're just the means. Because, you know, when you examine what that verse is saying, it runs so counter to the way we think uh, in America today, in this day of it's all about me, right? In in our day of of self-image, and self-esteem and self-assertion and self-importance because you see if we were writing this psalm today as 21st century americans uh, who knows we might be more likely to say something like that god helps those who help themselves right uh probably the the most often quoted verse that's not actually in the bible because uh, that's not how god works and it's not how this christian adventure works It's not how it's lived out, not for any of God's people, not in the Old Testament or in the New, not for the Reformation pioneers or for the Plymouth Pilgrims, because their story, our story, the Bible story, is the epic account of God's sovereignty working out His plan through the means of our human responsibility. Does that make sense? God working out His plans through the means of human agency, whether it's valiant or or vile, that he employs and empowers to advance his plan and to bring about the ultimate victory of Christ and his kingdom. Uh, And and today's celebration uh, of our our pilgrim founders gives me a great, relevant, real-world example to help flesh that out. If you've read today's bulletin or you you heard us talking about it, you already know uh, it was 400 years ago today, September the 6th, 1620, uh, in the Julian calendar, that our pilgrim ancestors set sail on the Mayflower. Who, who's my pilgrim descendants here? Okay, we've got some. Cousins, right? Uh, this church's original namesake and Plymouth's first governor, William Bradford, wrote about it in his journal, uh, describing this, this really uh, tearful farewell of these friends and family as they prepared to go on board. This is, this is what he wrote in his journal. Uh, he said, our pastor, John Robinson, 
forced by circumstances to stay behind with part of the colony, gave a tearful farewell send-off with the following words. He said, The Lord knoweth whether ever we see your faces again, but I am confident that the Lord has more truth and light yet to break out of his holy word. And then on the tide which stays for no man, they set sail into the unknown, leaving behind friends, family, and everything they had known. But they looked not much on such things, but they lifted their eyes to heaven, their dearest country, for they knew they were but strangers and pilgrims in this world. Guys, can you, can you imagine having the courage to undertake an adventure like that? I know I can't. Uh, but our pilgrim fathers did because they were absolutely convinced of some vital truths that we've forgotten. And chief among them was God's intention to move all of history to his desired conclusion. And to do it through the hard work of dedicated lives uh, of people who are wholly committed to him. And that wasn't some kind of uh, novel idea that our pilgrim ancestors invented. It's directly borrowed from the stories of the Bible and the distinctive features of Hebrew education. One commentator put it like this. He wrote, uh, this is a bit of a long quote, but it's worth it. He says, for the people of God, tremendous emphasis was laid upon the illustrious deeds of the immortal dead. The religious teachers made the past live in the minds of Hebrew youth. The Hebrew mind had no liking for abstractions. It was not interested as we are in the analysis of virtues. It did not interest itself in pale ideas. It took little interest in the graces and virtues of character unless, unless they were embodied in a living man. And so Hebrew teachers were always dealing with the past. He says they were constantly picking up some chapter of history and asking the people to read it in order to show what God is like and what God wants. They were always studying the experiences of their ancestors. And he finishes the quote by saying, it was only the experience that they found, it was only inexperience that they found inspiration to make the future better than the past. It was only inexperience that they found inspiration to make the future better than the past. And guys, that's why we take time like today to talk about our pilgrim ancestors and why at the end of October, why we highlight the work of the reformers, not because we worship them, not because we venerate them, but because their lives bear witness to the glory of God in the achievements that they attained and the adventures of faith that they undertook. Right? That's, that's why we study the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and in the journeys of Joshua and Moses and the miracles that attended the exodus from Egypt. It's why we shouldn't ever get tired of retelling the adventures of Gideon and Samson and David. And if you come to Bible study on Wednesday, you can do that. Right? Shameless plug for Wednesday Bible study, 3 o'clock. And Solomon and Elijah and Elisha, Isaiah and Jeremiah, James and John, Paul and Silas, William Tyndale and John Huss. Luther and Calvin, Bradford and Brewster, because, as one commentator said, it was by God's people concentrating upon the character and achievements of mighty men that their mind was trained and their spirit was strengthened because those men always pointed beyond themselves and to their maker. Right? They always pointed beyond themselves and to their maker. He continues, we do not think of these men as often as we should we would be braver and stronger if we made a larger use of the past 
He says, it's absurd to suppose that God is the God of the Jews only. He is a God of Americans too. It's unthinkable that God inspired men in olden times, but that his inspiration ceased 1,900 years ago. It's a fundamental teaching of the Christian religion that God's inspiration is continuous. And that article closes out by saying he is always guiding and teaching men. And we are to believe that all the virtues and graces which are exhibited in our American people are the outflowing of his eternal spirit. Right? That same Holy Spirit that impelled our pilgrim ancestors to literally lose their lives for the sake of Christ's kingdom and leave everything that they knew, everything, for this land of opportunity and new beginnings where, as one congregational minister would later say, God's people would be free to carry out a lively experiment, a holy commonwealth, to be a city set on a hill, sending forth the light of the gospel to the uttermost ends of the earth. And to fulfill the exaltation from today's psalm that as believers we can pray with David, my heart is steadfast, O God. I'll sing and make melody with all my being. I'll give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I'll sing praises to you among the nations. And for the Israelites in David's day, that meant whether they were friendly tribes or, or ferocious foreigners, whether they were going to get to unite in praise with Ephraim and, and Judah, or whether they had to declare judgment over Moab and Philistia, because they, like all God's people in history, knew that no matter what the world threw at them, that they were more than conquerors through Christ that loved us. More than conquerors. But, but then you have to kind of ask what that means, right? What it doesn't mean, not for the pilgrims and not for us, is that everything is always going to come up roses. You don't have to look too far to tell that's true, right? Because it sure didn't for the pilgrims, did it? And I, I definitely don't have time to tell you today chapter and verse of all the hardships that they suffered, uh, that the pilgrims went through. But even if we just tell you the highlights, right? Our ancestors were driven out of England. They could never get settled in Holland. They were betrayed by their first ship's captain. They leased two boats, only one of which ended up being usable. And guys, that's just the beginning of their quest. Right? That doesn't sound like a whole lot of more than conquering going on, does it? So what exactly does it mean? Well, if to, to conquer is to be victorious over an adversary, then to be more than a conqueror for us means we not only achieve victory, but we're overwhelmingly victorious in Christ, even when it doesn't look like it, humanly speaking. I mean, think about it. For the pilgrims, there was very little space aboard the Mayflower. For its 102 passengers, its additional crew, so 150 folks in all. Areas below deck were cramped and dark. Passengers had almost no personal space. Uh, many were seasick, and when the weather was rough, like it was for, for most of the journey, they weren't allowed to go on the upper deck and empty out the chamber pots. Uh, besides that, there was little food and even less water forcing most of the passengers, including the children, to drink ale just to stay hydrated. After four months at sea, the pilgrims sighted Cape Cod, and they, they actually tried to land uh, and make for the Hudson River, but they got turned back by storms until they finally came to rest in Provincetown Harbor, where Bradford tells us they immediately fell to their knees and blessed the God of heaven who brought them over vast and furious oceans and delivered them from all the perils and miseries thereof. Did you catch that? He said, what? He said, he blessed. They fell on their knees and blessed the God of heaven who brought them over the vast and furious ocean, delivered them from all the perils and miseries thereof. Think about that for a minute, guys. Uh, 
I don't think we would have said something like that, right? We're likely to grumble and complain if we don't get a good parking spot at the Golden Corral, <laughs> right? We get upset if you have to wait in a long line at Walmart. And these people were thanking God for arguably the worst transatlantic trip in history, right? And once they, once they got assured, the, the men of the colony started uh, constructing a common building, a common house for the women and children. Uh, and they actually, the kids and, and the women actually stayed living on the ship, which was fortunate because uh, that common house burned to the ground. And, and the ship was the only shelter the colonists had. Uh, not very long after that, after the house burned, uh, came what they called the general sickness. The general sickness swept through the camp, devastating colonists and crew members. Nobody knows uh, exactly what the illness was. Some speculate it was pneumonia, but who, hey, who knows? It could have been corona. Uh, but regardless, it was devastating. And, and let me tell you, at one point, there were only seven people of that company of 150 who were well enough to tend the rest, right? What do, what do we got here today? 90-some people maybe, right? Seven of you want to take care of all of us, right? Seven out of 150 uh, together would to make food, to bathe and dress the sick. And as a result of the pandemic, nearly half of that company died. So many that in order to hide the number of deaths from the Native Americans, that the pilgrims had to bury their dead at night and, and, and carefully smooth over where the soil was disturbed uh, and the graves had been made in order to conceal their losses. But church, these men and women were not disheartened. They weren't disheartened. William Brewster said, uh, listen to this, it is not with us as with men, and get this, it is not with us as with men whom small things can discourage. Small things. Or small discontentments cause them to wish themselves home again. Small things. He said, no, they were here and they weren't going back. They had come to America and they were here to stay because they had come on a quest to worship Almighty God according to their own consciences and according to the vital tenets of the Scriptures and the doctrines of the Reformed faith in a way that they knew God had ordained. And they were willing to face any danger, overcome any obstacle, and outlast any adversity to do it. And I wonder, church, what they would think of how we faced COVID-19. I think I can probably guess. Uh, in a nation where thousands of churches remain closed, where hundreds of congregations are forbidden to sing by their state governments, uh, and where millions of folks have happily settled into just passively observing from home. And, and please, please, please don't mishear me. We love our folks that join in, and I absolutely realize there are uh, valid reasons for those with pre-existing conditions or that are readily susceptible to illness to stay home. So, so don't get mad at me. Don't send Laura any mean emails in the office. Uh, but, but can I be really candid for just a minute with you? The reason that all of those heroes of the faith that we've mentioned today were able to do the things that they did and live the valiant lives that they lived was because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to realize that if we are in Christ, folks, the worst thing that can possibly happen to us is that we die and go to heaven. Love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds that your beloved ones may be delivered. And how was that going to happen? Well, the verse continues, Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. And brothers and sisters, God sent that salvation and he gave that answer in the person and the work of Jesus Christ so that we could proclaim with the faithful of every age to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you say that this morning? Can you say, or maybe, maybe I should put it this way, and I need you to be really honest with yourself right now. How would you complete this sentence? 
for me to live is what? What, what, what phrase or what would you put in the, in the blank? Well, if your name's Bill Gates, maybe that word would be Microsoft. If it's Jeff Bezos, maybe it would be money. If you're a parent, maybe it would be your children. A politician might say, for me to live is winning the next election. A lawyer might say, winning the big case. And those lists of possibilities there, guys, are endless. It could be fun or, or school or, or sex or entertainment or money or college or careers, better golf game. But no matter what, no one leaves that sentence blank. Everyone finishes it with something. Everyone is living for something, even if it's just the fear of dying. Uh, and, you know, if you don't fill in that blank, though, with Christ, what on earth do you put there that has any lasting value? What do you put there that has any consequence and that allows you to really live, to live a heroic life of meaning and consequence in a world like this and with a heart that's filled with hope and promise of an eternity that can only be found in the greatest treasure imaginable in the pearl of great price the fairest of 10,000 the lamb of God the king of kings and lord of lords who is the very reason that we can be brave and steadfast and future focused just our lord Jesus Christ because Jesus has already defeated the gargantuan enemy of sin and death and that gospel truth is how we can be brave to face all the lesser enemies in our everyday lives and have a heavenly destiny after our physical death. Because in him, in Jesus, sin was atoned. Death was defeated. The head of the serpent was crushed so that you and I could eat today at Christ's table. And so we could go from here in personal courage, with Christian courtesy, with divine justice and a readiness to help the weak in all of that in the service of the king and for the glory of his kingdom just like our fathers did before us just like all those men and women uh, who have commemorated this holy sacrament this history in food this memorial in bread this communion of the cup uh, and who will continue to do it as brothers and sisters until christ comes again will you pray with me God, our Father, it's truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ, and asking you, Lord, by the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, that you unite us in your truth and love so that we can confess your name and sit together at one table. And so come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this time and in this place that eyes may be opened that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine and ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.